Petersfield's Shine Radio. This is Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly. Hello, I'm Susie Wilde, and you're listening to Talking Books, a new programme for Shine Radio, where I blow life into some backlisted books you'll really want to read or reread. And I'm Tim O'Kelly of One Tree Books. I'll be your guide as to about what new books are coming out from publishers in the next few months. And we're sitting here in the shop, sitting with a cup of coffee and discussing reading. So, Tim, you were away last week. Just tell me a bit about where you were. I was cycling in, in Norfolk, Suffolk and Essex. I went all the way up from London, all the way up to Kings Lynn on the Route 1, uh, the national, national cycle route, uh, with Kate, my wife. And we had, a, we had a lovely trip. It was quite hard work, but good fun. Gosh, yes, I'm really, yeah, I'm seriously impressed. I think South Sea Seafront is the furthest I've ever cycled anywhere. But now I'm going to talk about books. So um, I'm really fascinated now, because you own a bookshop, how do you organise your books at home? Do you have bookshelves that are alphabetized, or what do you do? Are they random? Very good question. I have so many books at home, because of having worked in books for the last um, nearly 35 years, um, I have thousands and thousands of books. What I tend to do with recently read books is I put them in a row of recently read books, literally. This book I read last week, this week before that, etc. So then I have an idea of what I have read recently because I'm always being asked to talk about what I've read recently and what's good and what's, what's recent. So I have a really visual uh, picture of, of what has recently been published. After about a year or so, they all get muddled up and go to different parts of the house Different people borrow them, they go up, end up all over the place. So there's no, no strict um, rules at all. But that's how I start off doing it, so you, you can, I can see what I've recently read. That's a really, I might use that. I think it's a really good idea, actually. Yes, yeah, so, so all sorts of different sizes, all different sorts of books. So yeah. there's no, no order at all, really. I've got one blue shelf and one red shelf which I'm quite ashamed of, but it just it started randomly and then I just sort of couldn't help following the sequence. So, Susie, what do you mean by a red and a blue shelf? I'm almost ashamed to answer that question. I had a few books that were blue and I just randomly found that I had added to it and then I noticed it would look really nice on the shelf because I also had a white shelf, but that was because the publishers had chosen that was the sort of cover of of those days so I had a load of white books and I thought this is almost like a Union Jack so I can do a red white and blue simply from the covers of because I love hardbacks well yes, books are quite good interior decoration as well so it's not, <laughs> it's not lose some aspect of books but but yeah no for me it's as a as a sort of professional way of doing it I like to know what I've read recently so I can then talk about it and in the Zoom meeting era, we're all judged by our books anyway. Yes, I always try and get a, a blank wall behind me. Yes, so do I. <laughs> That's really ironic. But here we are, talking books, um, and we don't. We're in this lovely upstairs at One Tree Books with books all around us, so you can imagine us here. So the other question I've got for you is, if you've started a book, do you finish it? No. I think it's really important. If, you, if you're reading a book and you're not enjoying it, Stop. And go and read something else. I think I think we only have I don't know how many how many books I've got left to read in my life, but okay. there must be you know, only only few hundreds, not 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 thousands. And if a book is not giving you pleasure, if you're not enjoying it, if it's not not teaching you anything and not learning anything from it, then stop reading it and find one that does. 
Um, recently, I picked up a book, uh, Queenie, by Candice Carty Williams, which my daughter had recommended to me. She'd read it and, and really liked it. And uh, I tried it several times. I got to page 80. It's now jump thrown away i'm not i'm not i'm not reading it anymore i can't get into it i don't i can't see what it's doing for me so it's it's stopped well sadly given given that this is our talking about book program i'm going to say that you shouldn't always believe critics because that's had critical acclaim so again i think you know really we have to make up our own minds we, we do i yeah. always give it to page 60 well i got to page 80 on this but i think possibly the reason why i'm not enjoying it perhaps is that this book is really not aimed at me. It's aimed at a much younger readership. And so uh, I'm not saying it's not good. I'm just saying sure. it's not good for me. OK. Yeah, so that actually that's probably quite good. And what I want us to be doing in these programmes is talking from a position of passion, not necessarily the re- receive wisdom, so that you listeners can sort of work out where you sort of sit in that as well. And uh, and certainly my backlisted will be entirely books that I've come to love or have always loved. And I think that's quite important. So, Tim, what are you currently reading? Well, as always, I'm reading a few books at once, I'm afraid, <laughs> because I have different books in different rooms and I read them at different places and um, at different times of day. Um, the book I'm currently reading that's by my bed is A Suitable Boy by Vikram Seth, which is a book that was published ages ago um, and I never read and now that it's on TV I thought well before I watch the TV I must read the book the only problem with this book is it's enormously long so uh, I may find that I just have it by the bed and read the odd chapter from time to time but get on with other books while I'm doing it I think you have to so and, and how are you finding it and have you started watching the television I haven't I've determined that I'm going to read f- the book first um, but it is a long book, so hopefully it'll still be available on TV by the time I finish it. Um, I'm only a few chapters in, so I've, I've, I've really no idea whether I'm, it's a book I'm going to stick with properly. But so many people have said that it's their favourite book yeah. um, that I think I ought to really give it a go. And I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed, really, never to have read it in well, the past. There's you and I both. And I was doing it the other way round. I was actually, unusually, because I hadn't read it and it was published so long ago, I was watching the television programme first hoping to springboard myself into reading. And, of course, it has had the opposite effect. I didn't like the television programme. I thought it was... It just wasn't going anywhere. It was just all... You know, it had such an Indian cast and crew and so on, but they didn't use them. It was still just the same old, same old Andrew Davis, boy meets girl, loses girl, finds her again. You know, really, it was normal people in Calcutta or whatever, you know. Perhaps without quite so much sex. Possibly. Poss- well, I don't know, because I only watched the first... Actually, there was still a bit at the end of the first episode, so, you right. know, though it was unseen. Listener, don't worry. That's you with that. I'm unusually going to say I'm reading one that has only recently been published, or at least come out in paperback, which is Deadland by William Shaw. You put me on to the Alex Capiddy books. It's only the second in the series, and I really love them though I have reservations about Deadland, and I'll explain why, which is that I think every time you go to a different point of view character and a different scene, all the time you're saying to the reader, just bear with me, this will be all right. Kate Atkinson, a great example of somebody who does that the entire time at the beginning of her books, uh, her Jackson Brodie. 
And all the time you think, okay, I trust you, it will come good. And at the moment, I'm still in the bit of deadline because I haven't finished it, where I'm still holding my nerve and thinking, I really hope this is worthwhile. And almost it's because she's too good an author. Yes, I think it takes a real talent as a writer to to get all those different perspectives and keep you in the game. You've got to, uh, as you say, suspend everything until you get a picture from each of these different characters and then you've got to trust that the author is going to bring them together seamlessly. Um, and it sometimes just takes a little bit of time and you've got to, you've got to trust. I think that's, that's yeah. a good, good word. Yeah, and I think it has to be read at speed because if it's classic, if you read just like you, I actually have books for different times of day. And if it's my last thing at night book, I, I, I will read one of these scenes and then I have to sort of refresh my memory the next night of what's happening. But what I mean about her being almost too good an author is that she's perfectly capable of doing exactly what you've said. But each episode and each point of view character is almost too interesting on their own behalf that I always go oh dear when we're now moving on and I think particularly in detective fiction it's sometimes hard to always keep the action moving forward because sometimes there's this temptation to explain what you've just seen from the other point of view's point of view yes well William Shaw of course is is much more pure um, detective fiction whereas Kate Atkinson is is, I think she's more of an entertainer. She's giving you a, uh, a picture of all, all these different characters um, who aren't necessarily connected to the crime as such. It's just for, for, for colour and entertainment. She's the genius at that, I think, Kate Atkinson. And I would agree, definitely. Literary fiction of, of high entertainment value. So, you know, I hate these categorisations, but there you are. So what I've got to ask you, what are you reading... Um, at a different time of day. I won't specify because I don't know what your times are. You always seem to be here. But. Well, I'll tell you what I'm just about to start. That's one which is The Thursday Murder Club by Richard Osman, which is the book that everybody is reading at the moment. Um, and I, so I need to, I need, for professional reasons, you understand, not because I want to enjoy it, <laughs> but I need to re- get that read as soon as possible. Uh, I'm really looking forward to that, actually. Um, he's an entertaining guy. Uh, it has some terrific reviews. People are really talking about this book, so I'm, I'm really looking forward to that. Uh, I'm also reading The Humankind by uh, Rutger Bregman. That's, that's also a book that I've been picking up and putting down and enjoying, and, but with non-fiction I find that I can compartmentalise it quite neatly. You can read a chapter or two on a certain subject area, then move on. With a novel it's a little bit more tricky, as you say, you've mm. got to hold all these things in your head at once. Um, so that's that's a, a, a sample of I've got, a, I think, a, one or two others. I can't think offhand what they are even. But, uh, but yeah, because they're littered around the place. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> These books you cherish. Yes, I know. <laughs> but, uh, but yes, it's, 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 all, uh, it's, all, it's all good fun to read, to read in that, with that breadth, I think. I absolutely agree. Perfect. And in fact, with non-fiction, I think it's best to have a bit of air around the chapters so you can actually think about what you've just read. Indeed, yeah. OK, so... This last week, there's been an extraordinary burgeoning of new books come out. I think over 600 came out last week. The reason for that, of course, is that lots of books have been delayed because of the coronavirus over the last few months. People haven't wanted to publish the books when no one can buy them. Um, So a lot of the big key authors have delayed their books to come out right now. And that means there's uh, slight chaos in the shop with books (laughs) being unpacked left and right. 
But it has meant that there's a real flourishing of really interesting books out. It's very exciting, but how do you, as a, a, a shop owner, decide which books to actually have in the shop physically? And where do you put them? That table at the front of the shop is so important, isn't it? Well, Susie, that's, that's the most fun thing about being a bookseller, is actually choosing which books uh, we're going to have in the shop. Because there's all these books published. How do you pick the ones that are going to be right for, for my customers, mm-hmm. uh, the ones that I like, the ones that I think everyone else will like as well. And that's a mixture of experience. It's a mixture of following the reviews, because uh, they come out often just before the books are published, uh, reading the trade press, which is um, a magazine imaginatively entitled The Bookseller, yes. which tells you what's coming out in advance. But also I talk to publishers all the time. I see all the, ma- all the key publishers every month, and I talk to them about the new books, uh, go through it with them, and I find what I think are the best books that will work for us. The books that I've sold in the past by the same authors, but also the new exciting authors that are coming through. I mean, like Richard Osman that we talked about. Um, the publisher was tremendously excited about this, this author, as am I. And I think that um, for that reason, we have to then pick, you know, pick the ones that are going to work. That's really interesting that you also think about your readership. Um... Absolutely. That's the, that's the key, is that... Say some some publisher brings in a book about some obscure Russian author. I I would know that I have a customer that would be really interested in in that particular book, and so I think oh I'll get I'll, I'll have one of those in. So it's it's tailoring it right down to to individuals on the one level, but also on the sort of style of book that I know that that my customers enjoy, the ones the sort of books that I've recommended in the past and that have had very good feedback from. Uh, Obviously, sales as well. I know what, what actually sells. I've got a good computer system that will tell me what, how many of a particular author sells and what time of year they sell and what, um, what style of book it might be as well. So you've got to really drill down as far as you can, really, to, to, to work out precisely what is going to work. Now, this is a, this is <laughs> a system that's fraught with difficulties, and you get it wrong, I get it wrong a lot. You know, I have lots of piles of books that, that never sold, which I thought were going to be huge successes. There are lots and lots of mistakes that obviously happen when uh, I pick these books because sometimes I get it completely wrong and no one's interested at all in this, this wonderful new author I've, got, I've, I've lined up. At the same time, there are books I think, that, that, that'll, that'll never sell. And people come in and say, we've well, got that book. And you say, no. And then next person comes in, we've got that book. No. Then you realise you've got a, made a mistake quickly get book get books in but you can do that can't you if it's that way round i can there's there's a fantastic wholesaling system in in, in with books that uh, there's a supplier based out in eastbourne who we use the whole time every day in fact they have 200,000 books in stock Gosh. so i can get those books the next day um, provided i order enough of them that's really good yeah. so people that say oh i just use amazon because it's quicker that's not necessarily true no not at all i mean if you came in on a Friday evening at, at um, you know towards the end of end of the end of the day and said I, I'm really keen on this book, I would have that book in on Saturday morning. Gosh! So it, it is it is it is amazingly efficient, really. Right, that's excellent. And just going back to my thing about the table at the front of the shop, how do you make that decision? Well, again, that's uh, it's there's a limited space on there. There's yes. perhaps room for for thirty or so books. Uh, there are books that, are, that that carry on selling. They're, they're pretty exceptional. Uh, there are books that, that carry on perhaps for a year, and then there are an awful lot of books that only last a month or two. 
and then they go out of people's minds. It's not they're not quite good enough. They don't look quite good enough. They're not written quite as well, and they get cleared off. So there's constant movement on that table. But there are some books. There's one book in particular, "All the Light We Cannot See" by Anthony Dewar, that has been there for three years uh, and still sells. So there you go. Well, that's amazing, actually. And I, and I also note, because obviously I walk past the shop quite often, that very often they're eye-catching covers. It's me going back to the visual thing again. Um, I think that's important. Snag. Snag yes. for people. Well, they say never judge a book by a cover. And of course, that's <laughs> rubbish. That's, that's, <laughs> that's not something that any bookseller will tell you, because actually you've got to draw people's attention. You've got to, you've got to, you know, you've got to make a statement. And we all know this with everything that we, we see and do... Uh, you need to you need to get people's attention, and once you've got their attention, it's very important that the book is good enough. But you have to get their attention at the first in the first place. So, um, you know, a book that looks wonderful and that is is not very very good won't sell. But a book that is brilliant and looks awful won't sell either. Mm. So that's 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 the really important thing. And it has to look like what it is because with my first book. Um, the uh, illustrate well it was designed by Mark Ecob and Jay Wilson who's the artist nearly won an industry award for it because it was a thing of beauty and looked like a sort of Viking door listeners if you were not one of the millions that bought a copy um, and uh, and so that was wonderful and it was only beaten by The Handmaid's Tale but actually so many people when asked were saying yes but I don't know what sort of book it is it's a very beautiful thing but it wasn't saying Viking thriller. There's a real danger, uh, and publishers are, uh, often make this mistake. They put this wonderfully beautiful uh, picture on the front of the book, which has nothing to do with the book at all. So people get frustrated because they pick it up, they look, read it, and they go, "No, ah, this, this is this is not what I want. Not what I wanted at all." So it has to look like what it is. Um, but it um, also has to look like the genre, is what I mean, because yes. that totally fitted in. I mean, The Guardian says it's an intricately detailed Norse world. Well, that's an intricately detailed Norse cover. So it absolutely was a good match. But the people that might like to read the book had no clue what kind of genre it was in. No. It is, it's, it's very important to get, the, to get the genre right. So if you pick up a... Georgette Hare book and it has a picture of a Regency yes. bow on the front you know exactly what you're getting you know if this is a this is a historical novel um and you know it's a romance and you know you know what exact what mm. it is but if it and if it had a picture a very stylish picture of um I don't know something uh that the, the, the designer thought was was beautiful but had no connection with with a Regency romance then it's not mm. going to sell mm. And I think they'll be even more important at some point in this series. I want to talk about children's fiction and young adult fiction. And I think it's even more important there that the, the covers are both arresting and signify what might be within. Yes. Well, it's even more difficult, I think, for, for a children's book because the person who's buying the book and the person who's reading the book are not necessarily the same person, which is uh, the Quite. case with, with adult books where you know you see a, you see a book oh well, that looks interesting I'll buy it for me or I'll buy it for my friend yeah. easy if you're thinking that looks interesting to me but it may not look interesting to my 12 year old uh, daughter who's actually going to read the book and she's going to go nah that, that doesn't look interesting to me at all then it's no good so it's got to do two jobs as a, as a yeah. children's book um, the buyer and the reader that's a really good point well this is your section um so go with it tim what what have we to look forward to so the key book i wanted to talk about which is coming out is one of my favorite authors uh, robert harris uh, now he has written all sorts of books over the last um 20 20 30 years now i think um 
on all sorts of subjects, and he he managed always to write an exciting, interesting, well-written book, which is which is quite an achievement, really. He's written uh, a trilogy about Cicero. He's written books about the Second World War. He's written books that are contemporary as well. This particular new book is called V2, and it's a wartime thriller. Uh, and like a lot of his books, he takes he takes two angles, ways of looking at the the issue. One is the the rocket engineer, a chap called Rudy Graf, a, a German rocket engineer, uh, and one is Kay Caton Walsh, a junior Air Force officer, and she is tasked with trying to find out how to destroy these these bombs, and Rudy Graf is, was tasked to build them and make sure they they have the maximum imp- impact. Um, and we go back in 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 the in the story and we work out how rockets were developed by by the Nazis in the first place and um which is fascinating actually the the whole engineering process of how they got to build these 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 terrible weapons of war um and at the same time we have we have the story of the of the plucky brits and how they're going to going to going to bring them down so um so when you say it goes back in the story what what do you mean does it, is it like a flashback or yeah sort of really we start we start in in the end of 1944 when these bombs are starting to rain down on London. And we then find out how they got to be built in the first place. So, which is, a, which is as I say, an interesting story. Um, Excellent. And I always find with Robert Harris, he researches really well, but never just sort of offloads the research in. It's always part of the action. And we're always moving forward. I think that's brilliant. Yeah, he's, he's a great storyteller. There's no question about it. He wrote a... <clears throat> He's written, as I say, a number of different books. So he recently wrote a book called Conclave, uh, which was about the election of a new pope in, in the Vatican. And it, during this book, not an awful lot happens. It really, it's, it's really very... Uh, it's claustrophobic, claustro- almost. It's incredibly claustrophobic. Mm. Things, people talk to each other and they make plans and sort of what they're going to do with this pope. But nothing, no plot really happens. No events happen to, 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 to move things along. He manages to write this book with tremendous narrative drive, with great interest. I read it in almost one sitting yes. because it was so gripping. And yet, plot-wise, nothing big happens. It's all about the, the characters involved and, and how they interact with each other, which I think is a, is a masterclass in how to write a novel, really. Uh, it, it's an imperfect novel in, in some ways, and in in its um, denouement is, is perhaps less good than it could be. But... I think he, he's a real master of, of the modern novel. I think the thing with the denouement is only because what had preceded it is so brilliant. And that was a classic. We were renting a holiday cottage, and that was about the only book I hadn't read. And I looked and I thought, this is so unpromising. You know, just electing a pope. Really, I have nothing in common with any of this. I'm deeply, deeply despairing, but I'll read it. That's all the cornflake packet. And I started it, and like you, I was gripped in the best possible way. We always talk about cliffhangers and so on, as if they're ridiculous things, but this was so character-driven and so on, and I learnt so much. And it was one of those books that actually made me feel differently about the life around me for the time I was reading it, which I think is another marker of something that I will say probably more than you ever want to hear um, about the backlisted books as well. I think that's part of my litmus test for them. Anyway, Tim, let's just whack through the rest of your list. Well, there's another book that uh, is is actually recently published, in fact. It's just out already um, by Amanda Craig. She's written a number of novels. She, she sort of concentrates on contemporary subjects, um, 
I think you could call it you could call it a sort of state of the nation novelist she is. Um, although that would be perhaps to downplay how entertaining she is as a as a as a as a writer. This book starts with a kind of strangers on a train. That's the the Hitchcock film, I don't know if you remember, mm-hmm. where two strangers who meet decide after a conversation about their husbands that they need to kill each other's husbands. <laughs> yes. And because they would both do it, uh, kill the other person, there would be no there would be no apparent motive um, and nothing connecting the murderer with the person who was murdered. Um, so that's the, that's the start of the book. Uh, and of course, things unravel as, as it doesn't work out like the film at all. Um, and uh, uh, Hannah, our protagonist, she starts the story living as a, as a single mum on a council estate doing cleaning houses to support her young daughter. She's lost all her confidence and all her, you know, all her life has fallen apart completely. She ha- she's just left a, a big job in London where she held down a big salary. Uh, she was married to some aristocratic husband. It's all gone horribly wrong. Um, or has it? OK, the, the third book I was going to talk about was Summer Water by Sarah Moss. Mm. Now, this is a short book set in with lots of different little, little chapters that, that build up towards a big, big denouement. So it's set by a, a Scottish lock on a, on a sort of holiday, sort of holiday camp type chalets uh, affair. Um, we hear the story of different protagonists who, who are staying on the chalet. So we have a woman going for a run first thing in the morning, uh, a young man going canoeing on the loch, and various, various different activities going on. The rain beats down <laughs> torrentially throughout the whole holiday, and people get more and more claustrophobic in their, in their chalets until eventually something happens. Uh, I won't say what happens, no. but there's, there's a big dinner more. But what is great about this book is that the amazing description that she gives of these internal lives of these people. We really understand what it's like to be this young mother going for a run first thing in the morning. We understand the feelings of this frustrated teenager uh, on his canoe as he paddles through the rain in the lock. So it's like the hunting party in setting... Um, but by, I was thinking of the Lucy Foley. Yes, yes. But I found that deeply unsatisfying for all those reasons, that that was like tick boxes of who these other people were personally, and it sounds like the Sarah Moss book gives them totally satisfactory inner lives that effortlessly leads to increased tension felt by the reader. Is that right? I think so, yes. I think, I think she is a, is a wonderful describer uh, yeah. Of internal internal lives, she really understands people. Yeah. Um, it's almost yes. It, 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 she's a, she's really good at it. That's I was I thinking say. if you. I mean, this isn't one of my backlisted things, so I'm cheating a bit. But if you haven't read Ghost Wall, do I really commend it to anyone? Because again, it's one of those things that seems unpromising. It it sounds very much like it's just going to be this archaeological dig, and a girl goes and her father's there, but he's actually a reenactor. And again, that creeping sense of menace where you suddenly begin to think I don't believe what I think might be happening in this book is wonderful yeah yeah I think I think that's right I think it's it's the ability to create a sense of time and place she does that wonderfully we really we really understand what it's like to be to be confined in these chalets with the rain coming herring down a little bit not very well made and so there's a little bit of uh 
bit of toast underneath, to- crumbs <laughs> underneath the toast left by the last person. And, yeah. and you really get a sense of the feel of these, these holiday places. And why are they paying all this money to go on holiday to this place when they're having an awful time? Um, I think a lot of us may have felt that with our staycations um, this summer. Yes, <laughs> topical, topical. I like, I see where you're going with that, Tim. That's brilliant. Well, now, Tim, it's my turn for the backlisted part. And I've brought along Stones of Aaron Pilgrimage by Tim Robinson. Very nice. Very nice. Do you know it? I don't know it. And um, when you said Tim Robinson, my first thought was the, the, the chap who opened the batting for England in the mid-80s. But I don't <laughs> think it's him. I don't think it's him either. Okay. <laughs> well, anyway, what I chose this for, because it is unusual for me, it is a, a work of non-fiction... Um, But it exemplifies one of those things that I also love about books. You can enjoy reading them, but also it puts you in touch with a wide circle of very varied people. And books come to you at the moment that you need them sometimes. And I was reading Summer Isles, as you know, by Philip Marsden. We talked about that elsewhere. Um, And I noticed that this book was mentioned. And then completely randomly, some artist friends of mine talked about some ghastly thing called psychogeography. And I had no idea and didn't particularly want to know what that meant. But actually, what it means is almost the modern way that we write books about landscape now, like Robert McFarlane, um, who, you know, most people will know. And McFarlane has written the introduction to this edition that I have in my hand, a Faber edition of Stones of Aaron, that was first published in 1986. And this edition is 2008. And I'd say it's worth it because the introduction is also fantastic because Robert McFarlane, who randomly was Robinson's godson, I also discovered um write so knowledgeably about limestone and so on so basically what um tim robinson did was move he was born in yorkshire and he moved to ireland 14 years before writing this book so he knew it through and through and even learnt gaelic garlic whatever you sorry if if you're listening and you can speak it gallic (laughs) see thank there's my producer even getting involved um and But anyway, so he learnt the language so that he felt thoroughly immersed in it. Sadly, because I was reading this for research and I thought I might interview Tim Robinson, he died last April um, of Parkinson's and two weeks later his wife died. And they were such a tight partnership and they folded... um, a press called Folding Landscapes because one of the other things he did was draw beautiful and intricate maps that are not just kind of sea charts or ordnance survey but they are actually sort of mementos as well so that's the kind of psychic geography-ness of it that every stone pebble dry stone wall inlet stoat almost that he passes there's a reason why I say stoat in a minute Everything he passes holds not only a wonder for him in the moment, but gets him thinking about other things, either mythic or memory or things that he's been told by the Aran Islanders. So tell us what's so, what's so special about Aran. Well, I didn't know initially, but when I was researching for book three to absolutely finish my Viking trilogy... Um, I thought I was going to go to Orkney, but that trip was cancelled because of the virus, 
And then I randomly met Neil Oliver, who said, you have to go to the Aran Isles, which meant nothing to me. I just smiled politely and thought he was mad because it was not going to be a place that I wanted to go to. But then I discovered this book and the very island that he maps and writes about is the largest of the Aran Isles, which is just perfect. And probably I will never go there because I think everything I need in order to write about almost a mythic place is contained in a book. It's a bit like, was it Steph Penny who wrote... Um, the, the tenderness of the wolves. The tenderness of wolves. Thank you very much. I knew you'd always supply a title, um, and and she was meant to never have gone. If you've read it, it's, it has huge amounts of snow in it and, and set entirely in a place. It's mainly snow. The book, yes, it is mainly about snow, and she never went there. The author, did she? Allegedly. So Aaron, I was that's off Donegal. They're off Donegal, are they? Yes, I have actually been to one and of the Aaron Have you? Aita. Aita. Just you see, you can or something. You see, you uh, can even pronounce it. <laughs> and we got a, we got dropped off by uh, there's three of us. We got dropped off by a local fisherman and spent a week there cooking on an open fire, and uh, we had a fantastic time. That sounds exactly like. Now you'll love this book. I really commend it to you, listener, and also um, Tim, because that's just the sort of thing that he also does with friends. There are so many artists and so on because there's something about the Aranars that have seized people from W. Yeats, and and they're all sort of famous artists and so on who have absolutely gone mad on it. So I'm going to just read an extract now that I could have chosen almost any paragraph from any part of the book. But this bit is exactly exemplifies how you can get story out of anything. This curved mile lies around a flat, expansive peninsula, scarcely rising above sea level, turning the headland with the endlessly odd, angular, secretive field walls on the right and the shore alternating heap shingle and strewn boulders on the left one traverses small, sandy, salty, rocky wastelands given over to the rabbits and the stoats that hunt them. A stoat, busy at the neck of a bloody carcass twice as big as itself, may look up and eye you so boldly as you pass that the old idea still current in Aaron of its spitting poison comes to mind and one is relieved when it withdraws itself, thin as a thread of wind through a chink in a wall. This vague terrain around the headland is known as the Drowned Woman. She from whom it is so anonymously named lies buried just within the sea wall of the last field before a track begins that leads one on more rapidly towards the harbour and the town. I suppose it was a seaweed gatherer who found her left by the tide on the shore here. Her clothing indicated that she came from Connemara, I have been told, and her baby would have been born soon. In those days, but I do not know what days they were, perhaps of a century ago, it was not the custom to bury such human jetsam in consecrated ground, for fear of mixing non-believers with Christian dead, of suicides, such as this unknown mother not to be perhaps was, with good folk, legitimately dead, not of their own volition. Instead, some peasant more welcoming than the churches made her part of this, his field, setting a small stone at her head and another at her feet. Two more of the untold stones of Aaron. Wonderful, beautiful piece. Um, I think it, you've really 
painted a picture uh, of a place. I mean, well, he has painted a picture, a wonderful postcard from Aaron. Um, in these days when we can't actually travel anywhere, it's fantastic to, to actually travel in our heads to these places. And uh, I think that uh, that little vignette is was perfect. That's a really interesting point, actually, because I think some books grab you at the moment that you need it. And I had only thought about it in terms of research. But actually, I think you're right, because I began reading it heavily in lockdown when we weren't going very far. And the other thing I noted about it is that, and about myself, is that I was looking round my garden in a way that he was looking round an entire island and getting to know things. And on my wild walks, I very often think I'm starting to talk about a Scots pine or something. And actually, I'm going back through memory. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the best travel writers do that. They, they, they take you to a place... Um, whether it's whether it's your own back garden, I mean, Robert McFarlane is is never travelling that far necessarily, but or whether it's Cherry Apsley Garrard at the at the South Pole or or Colin Thubron up a uh, a Chinese mountain, it it's still the same ability to to take you to a place and to really make you feel you're there. Fantastic. And I think that's part of the psychogeography as well. So it's not only the skill in making their moment vivid to us in the moment we read it but also the 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 making this whole notion of memory and so on and and who you meet change the journey yes so another thing i just just wanted to add was was that with this sort of book i think you need to leave time to read it very slowly so that you have spaces between between the chapters or between the little little episodes so you can then you can reflect on them and and i think then then you get much more from it I think that's right, and that's why it's good to have books at different times of day, which you mentioned earlier, which I hadn't really thought of, but that is exactly part of it. And definitely, if I'm reading non-fiction, it absolutely has to be a daytime pursuit and not a last-thing-at-night thing. So I hope you've, in, you've enjoyed hearing about all the, all the books that are coming up in the, in the next, next few months and some of the books that have just come out amongst the 600 that uh, we talked about. Um, we picked just a handful, but hopefully that's enough to be getting on with. Susie? I really enjoyed this, Tim. And um, talk about the power of the spoken word. I've already bought two of the books that you've mentioned, but I am a terror. Um, so I commend them to you. And, and if, obviously, you're not sitting there necessarily with a pen, so all the books that we've mentioned today will be on the Peacefield Shine Radio website. So thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed our first programme. We'll be back next month, which will be Halloween. We might have a special guest. I'm still waiting to hear. Hopefully. (laughs) So it's goodbye from Susie Wilde. And Tim O'Kelly. You've been listening to Talking Books, presented by Susie Wilde and Tim O'Kelly, and produced by John Wellsman. We're building a new 24-hour radio service for Petersfield. A bright new service for the whole family. And we want to know who you'd most like to hear on air. Perhaps it's someone you've already heard in our podcast. Or new untapped talent. Who are the brightest, most charismatic people you know in Petersfield? People who could bring a smile to anyone. And who are the real characters and entertainers in your life, in your neighbourhood or where you work? 
If you know someone who has a gift for bringing joy into people's lives, let us know and we'll get them on the air. It might even be you. Don't be shy. Email team at petersfieldradio.uk. Find us on social media or call Petersfield 555 500.